0: You know, sport has the luxury of, uh, you know, preparation time. So you're playing your hockey match. So it's through the week, you're training and you're preparing and you know you're playing, yeah. you know, sometimes not so much important for hockey, but kind of know the field you're on and some of the conditions. So you, you prepare yourself and give yourself the best chance to, to play well. Then you go and play the game. And In your case, you always won. Um, but nonetheless, you know, after the game, kind of review the game and work out some of the things that work really well for you and then maybe a couple of things you like to tinker with and then of course you've got a new opponent so you restructure and re-replan and, and get ready so sport has that luxury which business doesn't because business is in competition every day so therefore generally what what business does it just rolls from one day to the next
1: how do you get ten thousand people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute corporate and world sport coach. This is the inspiring great leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the inspiring great leaders podcast. Buckle up for an episode like no other as we welcome a true luminary in the realm of Australian sports with an illustrious career etched in cricketing history. Our guest has donned the hat of a World Cup winning Australian cricket coach leading the team to uh, ashes and World Cup glories. Boasting an impressive 79.83 winning percentage in cricket across Tests and one-day internationals, he stands shoulder to shoulder with legends like Vince Lombardi and Alex Ferguson. Two Cricket World Cups, three Asher series victories and the historic win against India after 36 years, all orchestrated under his watchful eye. But there's more to him than meets the eye. A performance coach, a keynote speaker and author, he's on a mission to impart the secrets of success, armed with an honorary PhD, a PhD, and a bachelor's in human movement studies, he is embodiment of academic rigor meets field expertise. Stay tuned as we unravel the layers of this multifaceted personality, exploring the intersection of sports, leadership, and the pursuit of excellence. John Buchanan, John, welcome to the show. Yes, good day, Craig. Thanks very much for having me. Now you've had uh, quite an exciting high performance focus for many many years, but I'm really curious. Where did you grow up, and what was the big dream when you were running around the playgrounds?
0: Uh, look, I grew up on the uh, the Gold Coast um, back in the late '50s, early '60s, and it was a really a uh, country town in those days. It was still a, a long drive to Brisbane, a single lane highway, and uh, very little um, high rise uh, down the coast. And uh, yeah. Bit of a bit of a sleepy hollow. So I was I was fortunate enough. My parents uh, uh, sent me to uh, the Southport School, which was a a GPS school down there. Fortunately, we only lived across the road, so I didn't have to board. Um, uh, That was maybe that was uh, something that I needed. But at the time, I enjoyed uh, just being at home. But um, being at home meant that I used to play around in the backyard. Uh, We'd bring some. Know, friends out from school who were boarders of a weekend and that's where all the test matches were played in the backyard, in a net built by my father and to protect uh, gardens and windows and keep us <laughs> a little bit contained, but that's where the dreams were. The dreams were playing for Australia. Cricket was my preferred sport, so it was dying the baggy green, but equally i played a lot of rugby league and rugby union test matches back there played davis cup uh anything really in the backyard and the dream was to play for australia
1: yeah brilliant you know, it, it's i think you've got to be able to visualize things first before you can achieve things how far did you go from a, a cricketer's point of view um as a young up-and-coming cricket player uh we did what sort of level did you get to in Uh, and and was there a time where you just realized you know what i may not make this but i'm a really good coach (laughs)
0: um yes i I really think certainly when i was growing up i mean the world's changed and doesn't mean one's better than the other but certainly when i was growing up there was a bit of black and white tv and and radio so that's how i was transported onto the cricket fields whether it be in england or in australia occasionally i was fortunate enough to go to the gabber and watch some games, but in the main the visualization came through your imagination, you know. So we would, as I said, play these test matches and we had the old ABC cricket books and all the all the names and draw the names out of hats and and, and you sort of donned the guise of the individual player as you sort of imagined them to be. Yeah. So they were the I think the important parts of of pursuing this this career dream of, of wearing the baggy green. So I pursued that. I uh, did well at school, went on to university, played for University Cricket Club for a long period of time, um, managed to get into the Queensland Sheffield Shield team in the late 70s, went to England, played professional cricket uh, in England for uh, Oldham in the Central Angs League, Cambridgeshire in Minor County. So I was sort of heading all in the right direction and then a bit of injury. But at that time, also came the end of the Packer era. So Packer had taken a lot of players out of Sheffield Shield cricket, obviously, and out of the Australian cricket team and they'd gone and formed World Series cricket. And uh, when that came to a conclusion, when the ACB, as it was termed then, and and, uh, Channel 9 through Packer came to an agreement about how they could all work together, then all the players returned to their various states. And at that stage, that's where... Uh, ambition and ability sort of parted of company. I realised then that maybe, maybe I was a bit too harsh with myself, but overall I, I think I'm a reasonable assessment to say, yeah, this is about as far as this dream's going to go. Mm. So it was time to chase another dream. So at that stage I, I had a degree and um, I was about to be married, so I went off and uh, became a recreation officer in the Townsville City Council and, and began my uh, sort of professional working career at that point in time, which was uh, in the early '80s.
1: No, yeah. so it's so obviously playing in the backyard. Was there a specific player that you maybe idolised uh, the most, and really, and, and tried to emulate?
0: Well, obviously, everybody wanted to be Bradman. There's absolutely no doubt about that, and I think everybody still does want to be Bradman uh, because he it, it was just the the icon, if you like. I'll, that sport and indeed, you know, there's been lots of research around in modern times where they try to compare using algorithms and so on, athletes across all ranges of sport. And I think Bradman still finished on the top of those. So hmm. um yeah, look, it was Bradman, I we had our local heroes, so coming from Queensland. and there were the, the Peter Burgess and the Tom Beavers and the Ken Mackay's, Wally Grouts and so on, who were all playing for Australia. So in a sense you always wanted uh, to have one of those in your side in the backyard. so And then, of course, legendary Australian players at that time from the you know Lindwells and Benos and Harvey's and O'Neill's and so on. So this is going way back, of course. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was always great. But we, we didn't just confine ourselves to Australian players. We looked all around the world, all the South Africans and the New Zealanders, albeit there weren't too many New Zealanders because, as I understand, you're from New Zealand and uh it was probably important to let you know right at that period of time there wasn't too many new Zealanders in our list uh but a lot of english you know a few indians and so on so it was just a magic time to create um, you know all those wonderful memories i suppose but all the engrossing test matches we had in that backyard
1: yeah brilliant you know obviously you become a, a really strong leader as a coach, and then continued on to do that as um, kind of consultant and in, in the future. Was there someone or you know maybe a couple of people that really stood out as having a, a massive impact on you know the, the way you've approached both coaching and leadership over the years?
0: Mm-hmm. No, I don't believe. Any one person in particular? Um, I guess I've been reasonably eclectic in terms of how I how I finally worked out how I coached. So you know, the, I mentioned I went and started working in the rec, as a recreational officer so, City council city um, council. You know, that was followed then by a whole series of jobs: Commonwealth Games, National Record for Australian Volleyball. Went into um, teaching in TAFE then uh, we went overseas I got a master's at the University of Alberta came back and lectured at the University of Canberra and then back to um, the department of Tourism, sport and racing and management program Quality sports which sort of and then in between that or along the way there was five uh, children as well so um come about mid-94 that's when really I became serious about the single coaching I'd um, we'd come back to Brisbane in the early 90s, and I'd gone back to my career club Obviously, coached um, a lot of my young uh, children in, in their various clubs and so on in, in uh, junior sport. But I decided that I, having you know, studied at uh, University of Alberta and some coaching, some philosophy, some psychology, some organisational theory, that could I actually coach adults? So I went back to my old club. And, Started coaching there for, for two years and and was reasonably successful there um, doing that and uh, the the uh, Queensland job came up in uh, '94. Uh, Jeff Thompson was coaching at the time and Martin Cannon been his offsider and they'd be coaching for four years or so and and they got okay but Queensland still had never won this thing called the Sheffield Shield which became obviously the holy grail and uh, and so I put my hand up to have a go at it and was given the opportunity to do so. And to do that, though, it really meant, going back to your original question, um, how do I coach? What do I believe? What are my values? What are my principles? What are my cornerstones? So it, it took me all the way back to that that backyard at uh, Mum and Dad's place and the values and principles that my parents um, instilled in me, And then... Taking that forward to the school and the various teachers and coaches that I had that were also doing similar sorts of things, the players I played with when I came to the University Cricket Club. You know, my first game, I walked into the dressing room and there were uh, basically all my idols when I'd been at school. You know, I follow great cricket and here they were and I was actually with them. And there was a couple of test players. I mentioned one before, Tom Beavers. And- our opposition was filled, filled also with Sheffield Shield players, um, so there was a lot of learnings that went on in that time from those players, and then my experiences for the the season I had for, for Queensland, plus my overseas experiences, the people you run into, so, um, and then through all my work experiences as, as yeah. kind of a leader of small teams, but also answering to other bosses. So from all that, you know, I worked out in the end, what I like, what I don't like, what I want to do, what I don't want to do, and then how do I actually deliver all that. So that's sort of for my philosophy and, and approach to coaching, which I then took to that interview for Queensland and was successful in getting the job. And And, then, and in that first season, we won the Sheffield Seal, which was a pretty amazing um, event to be part of. It, it wasn't necessarily part of the plan that we were going to win in first year. My my pitch to them was that we would dominate domestic cricket for the next 10 years and then somewhere in there, because we would be changing our system and process, that we would win a Sheffield Shield. That not only would we win one, but we we would be in a better position to win more because we understood what we are doing.
1: Yeah. yeah, I love that. Sort of going back to the basics and really thinking about the strategy on how we can build the foundations up and obviously achieve really, you know, quite high success in that first year. We've got a few, you know, when I look at kind of some leadership roles that have come up in both corporate and sport um, this year, for instance, you know, you look at Vanessa Hudson going into the the Qantas CEO role, who's probably coming into a very challenging space where everyone's eyes are on her for po- possibly all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, from a business perspective, then you have someone like scott robertson in new zealand who is taking over the all blacks which has a very esteemed history of you know a very high winning percentage um just got second at the at the world cup um, and has come from a dominant winning background those pressures when you take over a team or take over a company that's one either going really successful or is or is struggling and the eyes are on you uh can be quite you know can 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 challenge people in different ways you know for you stepping into the australian role uh as you're comparing the australian role where you're kind of stepping into a place where they had been performing really really well have a great history versus say the queensland team where they hadn't won yet what was it like for you going into both of those roles from a mindset perspective were you feeling a bit of imposter syndrome were you feeling the pressure of you know, for the Australian team that you've got to live up to everyone's expectations versus say, you've got a massive opportunity at Queensland?
0: Yeah, look, all all good questions. And then uh, sort of throw into the mix. uh, I also went and coached Middlesex for a season uh, where they had been a very successful team and, and, uh, but it slipped down the peaking order for a while and a new captain come in. So I was sort of brought over there to change things around and then, uh, when uh, the IPL, the Indian Premier League started, uh, I was one of the first coaches in there. we one of the first friends, so it was a startup, really. Um, but I suppose, yes, there, there there are no doubt all those pressures. So when I took on the Queensland job, I, you know, I never felt imposter syndrome, but I knew I didn't have any of the experience uh, of first class coaching. I, I, in my own mind, I knew. As I said before, I knew human philosophy principles, what I was going to do and how I was going to go about it. But at the same stage, I knew I couldn't do that without the support of the, the players, hmm. and so you know, I I really actively saw their help. Not necessarily in the in the big decisions, because I don't know that well. I didn't believe that that was necessary. There, role, that was my role. Um, but it was more the things that, that were affecting them directly. So it was a little bit around, um, you know, dress cut. It's, you know, what they like, you know, what they were would be comfortable in doing. Because, again, I was pretty keen for us to look and be different um, and act different. Um, and, and so I wanted to take them away from a casual sort of cleanser or to a, a more, um I don't know business look. I suppose when you travelled, and and then uh, look a little bit better when you you sort of move on to the training paddock. So uh, I wanted to bring that sense to them. I wanted to understand you know how they best travelled and uh, you know hotel conversation, all those sort of things, uh, and some of the things that I liked in and around training uh, that would help, would help them in their training, albeit uh, bet I was going to change the way training looked anyway. Um, so th- that was always, you know, the approach. And then I, you know, in that first year, uh, we introduced computer technology, which hadn't been done in, in sport before. Or sorry, I shouldn't say hadn't been done. It was right at the very beginnings of it. A couple of other sports, and Bob I think, in uh, South Africa at the time, I was beginning to fiddle around with it in cricket. Uh, but certainly, we were the first state and probably sport to really delve into it seriously. So, um, you know, that was a lot of experimentation because I just, you know, I was not a computer person, but I knew what I wanted at the other end of it. And, and so, you know, we set about doing that. And obviously there, there is a resistance because players just want to go and play, which is fair enough. Um, and then, you know, what's a bit of data going to happen? You know, what's a bit of uh, computer technology? What's, how's that going to help me bowl a cricket ball? How's that going to help me hit a cricket ball? You know, so... So there was a lot of those things that we needed to walk through, but gradually uh, we got most people on side, and then, of course, winning that shield the first time around, uh, that 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 helps anything you're doing, whether you know, you're a long-term coach or, in this case, first-term coach. Uh, if you can get some success at something you're doing, then um, it all almost automatically says, oh, well, all the things that you're doing must be working and so we'll continue on. So you potentially finish up with less resistances. So, but going to the Australian job, um, at least I had a coaching pedigree by that stage. You know, I've been coaching five years and got some good results. But nonetheless, it was still very much a case of trying to bring the players with me because for them, they were a good team. But from players that were in the Australian team who had come back into the Queensland team, you know, when they weren't playing for Australia, I always got a sense that there was a heck of a lot of stuff that could be improved in that Australian team, yeah. and certainly their results would show that as well. Even though they got some good results, you know they just won the '99 World Cup, and uh, Stephen Ward just took over as captain. So, um, uh, you know, there was things heading in the right direction, but I just believe that they was scratching at the surface. So that was really my approach to them when I first met them, and that was you notion know, going on a journey to Everest together. So. Um, There are a lot of, I guess, expectations and pressures, but for me, I I suppose it was always a case of, I need to stick to me. I, I can only deliver me. I can only do what I can do. And if that's not good enough, or we don't get the results, or somebody else has a different opinion, um, that okay, you know that that's that's the way it rolls because that's that's what happened in one of my experiences in Middlesex. You know, it didn't work out. It didn't work out because I didn't strike up a good relationship with the captain, and I was really trying to push Jay and make too quickly, or that's what the, the board was asked asking for. Um, but I could I could have chosen the easy route, same in, in the Indian Premier League with Surah you know, for me, an icon player in India and you know, just incredible leader for them in terms of changing mindset of many players, you know, sort of building on what had gone before him. Uh, but I believe this new format, the T20 game, had passed him by and that, that was my conversation with them all the time. I don't think you're the right captain for the side. I don't think you, you think quick enough. You're physically not in shape for what the game demands. Another, have another role, but not that role. So, again... I could have chosen not to do that. I could have chosen not to approach it that way and just just sort of rolled along and gradually made some small change. But that that doesn't um, sit in turn inside my philosophy and principles and, and, and vision and, and um, you know really never being satisfied with where you're at. So so in both cases, I could have protected those jobs by compromising my principles, but I wasn't prepared to. so. Uh, so I, I was sacked in Middlesex, and I eventually was sacked at, uh, in the IPL. Uh, whereas, I guess fortunately, uh, went through the job worked out well, and then I was involved with the Australian team and, and had eight years there where We had incredible success, and huh. but nonetheless, you know, I was I was still me all the way through that, and and therefore, you know, I think that insulated me a little bit from. Expectation. Certainly winning helps. If you're losing, uh, it's a different it's a different story. And you're continually under the uh guise of the media and and then other stakeholders and other critics. And now, of course we lost the ashes in two thousand and five in England. And so I, I felt the brunt of that at that point in time. But uh again, all that did has forced me to go back and you know, it made me ask three important questions, I think, which are important. There's I'm sure Vanessa Hudson and and Scott. And a range of people will have already done so, maybe pre, pre this or or given their new role. But the first one was, you know, could I make a difference? So with that Australian team after the lost, I'd been there six years. We'd, we'd won I a lot of things. We hadn't lost too much. Um, but, you know, I was my errors was on the chopping block, so I had to go to the board and say, well, I should be retained. But I had to first convince myself or ask myself whether I should be retained before I go to them. Uh, so the first question was, you know, could I still make a difference? And that is still around. Everett's. what, what, what are the dreams and aspirations that we can ch- uh, chase still? So that was one. Second was, you know, um, did I still have the energy to do it? And so while I could possibly say yes, look, this is uh, inevitably what we could chase. But you know, uh, an Australian player, but an Australian coach, you virtually three, six, and five days a year because. You're two hundred and fifty nights uh, a year away from home, uh, whether you're playing in your home country or not, you're still away from home. And then for a coach, those those down periods is when you're actually thinking about the next two hundred and fifty nights. Yeah. So, so did I really still have that passion, desire, fire, energy to to chase the dreams? And then the third one was, um, if if the first two was yes, which they were, I needed to go to the senior players, who was that's that started rigging, Ponding, Adam Gilchrist, the leadership group. And just say, listen, um, do you guys still want me around? Because of course, if they didn't, then it didn't really matter what I said in the first two. Um, you know, if they weren't going to support, there would be no um, reason for me then to reapply for the job. Anyway, they said yes, and so I was able to go to the board and paint the picture about what it was going to be like for the next uh, 20 months, at which
1: time I said, oh, I'll be finishing. If, uh, you're getting that length of time. Mm you know it's a true test of your character that you have the ability to kind of step back and and you ask the players and and ask those questions i'm not sure everyone does sometimes they kind of the ego kicks in in a way and and i'm sure you face this many times when you achieve great success or you achieve poor performance and generally in those times is when people's true character comes out and so how like for you dealing with a lot of personalities a lot of high ego, um, your characters inside the team. In those situations, how much of a role did you play in just ensuring that people kept their feet on the ground? Um,
0: Well, I think it's a a a, a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week role. Um, So for me, again, which is part of, I guess, my principles, but it was I, I needed to live them. I needed everybody to see every day that irrespective of whether we're winning or we're losing, um, irrespective of what the media or whatever else is going on either off-field or on-field, that I was just pretty calm and pretty stable and pretty measured uh, uh, about those sorts of potential impacts. Um, and so by doing that, In my mind, I was at least modelling the type of behaviours that I thought were really important to the group. Then, of course, there are plenty of one on one meetings, there are plenty of team meetings, there are are bringing people into the mix Mm -hmm. that are aligned in philosophy but will help that whole process, you know, because, again, sometimes leaders, I was certainly one of those, that need to recognise that you're not the right person to talk to some people at some time. Or you may not be the right person to talk to a person most of the time, okay. but there are others in your midst that can do that on your behalf. And so, you know, it's a it's a it's a constant job of um, uh, both modelling and structuring and subtly influencing all the sorts of things that you want, so that. In terms of a culture, and then in terms of um, performance or, or preparing to perform and then performing, um, in essence, the players are very much feeling that they're in, they're in control of all that. It's it's really coming from them, and and so that's part of the you know part of the approach. It's, it's about the coach really being redundant. If, if you're actually doing your job, whether you're a psychologist, a teacher, a coach, or whatever it might be, if you do your job well then people shouldn't need you. But of course, as we know, people change every day and the dynamics in a team environment change every day. And so that's why I said your your job is twenty four seven because in a sense you're monitoring all that and trying to insert yourself when and where it's appropriate and with whom it's appropriate or conversely, making sure it's not you and other things are happening but are going to actually help you achieve the sort
1: of uh, outcome that you you're trying to try and charge we have a fascinating uh, i suppose dynamic happening in regards to culture and we see some leaders who think they need to protect culture and and it and it's kind of like a stable thing whereas we know as you're talking about there the cultures are are constantly evolving your know, people are changing the dynamics are changing what is absolutely crucial to hold on to as a leader um you know what things can you put in place to ensure that overall the culture remains somewhat steady but allows that evolution to occur uh that avoids you know sort of fearing too far to the right or to the left um in in either a corporate or a or a coaching, or in a team situation, leadership is certainly one of
0: the one of the key elements. So, in the cricket team, the captain, the vice captain, and and senior players are really important in terms of at least understanding maybe the culture that you want, where you want to go, and and them then either delivering on that or at, at the very least not resisting and you know, not, not putting up a barrier to it. So, you know, one of the uh, corporates I'm working with at the moment, um, we're on the, the coach in residence. So, so basically I work with the CEO and, he, and his senior leadership team. And, and he is a, a very, very good example of the right sort of leader in terms of culture, for that organisation, just the way that he talks uh, the way that he's available um, the way that he he works that he actively you know delivers on what he's what he's asking for of his troops he's delivering on that himself and uh, so that that's one thing um I, I think um, then where you've got the opportunity it's it's about the recruitment and the selection process. Uh, so obviously the the leadership group are generally, going to be there, which is a good thing. Uh, But beyond that, where you can influence some key uh, recruitments, then that becomes an important part of the puzzle as well. So for instance, in the cricket team, it would be around my assistant coach, or it would be around my strength and conditioning uh, coach, or it would be around my physio, or it might be around the masseur, because those people uh friends to the players always because they're no threat in terms of selections and uh, other things that that might impact on what they want to do on the cricket field yeah. where they do impact is helping them be better on the cricket field so it's either skill based or it's physically based um, you know sometimes a performance psychologist you know, so it could be managing based so so therefore, they have lots of conversations, generally one-on-one conversations with individual players, and so I needed to know that those people would be influencing and talking with the players in the way that I thought would be important. I didn't need them to be, you know, divergently opposed to the sort of things that I was doing. So, so I think that's another really important part. So long as you actually understand where you're going, and I think that's another really, really. Important well, part of the puzzle is, as I said, you know, we we created Everest, and then and then what well, what does Everest mean? So you know, it would be recreated, uh every tournament, maybe, or sometimes down to a game, um, or over a period of time. So so it was always, in a sense, that's what we're aspiring to be. So we always knew that, and and I think that's a really well, part. That's what I see in this corporate at the moment. That. They just don't have a real clear shared picture about what they could be, and, yeah. and I think if we can get that, then the leadership uh, helps drive that, and then sitting underneath that are those key influencing people uh, that then really impact on on the troops. You know, so those things are important, uh, and then it's it sits around, really sits around. Accountability, but accountability means that firstly, every person needs to be uh, accountable for their own actions, so on field and off field, um, and and then responsible for the, the, the team or the team culture. Because in other words, uh, they can't yeah, be accountable been, for somebody else, sure. but they can be responsible in so far as this is that notion. You know, the standards you walk past, the standards you accept. So. Sure. If somebody or some things are not really quite right, it, it is their responsibility to at least alert of that person or somebody else that these things need fixing. So, so they become really, really important that um, in a mature team, everybody becomes a coach, like everybody, you know either a training or off field, or Everybody becomes uh, a really important decision maker in yeah. in how things. I got it once all
1: along the way, um, both in your experience working with the corporates, but also in when you're working with your teams, have you, um, spent the time to allow them to decide what behaviors are appropriate or versus you coming in as the leader and going here, this is, this is how, how things are going to work. Um, which approach have you taken or do you kind of do a bit of a, a bit of a mixture yeah look i prefer to see
0: myself as a puppeteer um it's as far as yeah would always want input from everybody as much as possible you know so the notion of empowering everybody to make the decisions however the, there's always a caveat on that and that is yeah again as i said before I don't really want people veering off in directions that are absolutely going to be um, too disruptive for, for the group or at least take us in directions that we don't need to go. Yeah. So When that occurs, then, then I've got to find ways of means of actually steering either that individual or that idea or that um, action or behaviour or decision uh, back on track somehow. Now hopefully I can steer that back on track by conversation and getting people to understand However, if I can't, then then there will be the need to actually step in and basically say, no, we can't do that at, at this stage for this reason. Yeah. Uh, but overall, again, going back to what I said when I started with the Queensland team, very much trying to get the players involved in that in that um uh, decisions that I think were going to impact on them directly. The bigger decisions I thought were really still still my role, but but having said that, even if I did make the there was a great need to actually bring people along with you. Otherwise, you know, e.g. The, say the computer technology, why, why would we spend money on, on TNO? Yeah. Well, a lot of resistance, but gradually we, we got people to understand the benefits of it for them individually and for us collectively.
1: Yeah. I've kind of found working with people that when you've when the leader or the leadership team have developed the absolute clarity on what their vision's going to be and can articulate that, then I find really asking the employees or the team members uh, two really important questions. One is, what does a world-class version of this look like, of this team look like? And then the second one is, what is going to stop us from doing that? And from there, then you can actually pull out the key themes. And I find in that way, then the players or the employees hold each other accountable because they have complete buy-in into what it is that it's going to take to achieve that vision together, because um, I think it's difficult to try and get everyone involved in creating the vision. Sometimes it's a, that can be a really difficult part, but the behaviours is something that everyone can be a part of. And even if some of the things they suggested didn't come through, at least they've had an opportunity to be part of it. Um, so I always find that really useful. Yeah, no, hundred percent.
0: And uh, again, with this organisation I'm working with, the so they're They've got a head office in Brisbane and then they, they've got their regional offices. So, you know, that, that adds a degree of complexity to everything you just said. Yeah. With the Australian cricket team, you know, we were we were sort of central office, meaning that we, we'd come together in competition. That was the only time we came together. Yeah. But otherwise, that they would be out in the regions or in their states. So I had to try to make sure that, you know, all the state coaches... Certainly, the state coaches, but if they're assistant coaches, uh, kind of understood what I was trying to do. Uh, mm. And that they, uh, I wasn't going to tell them exactly how they should run the show, but as so long as they understood where we were going um, and also understood, you know, where we saw different players, either what they're doing well or some of the training needs or some of the, um, you know, skills that maybe they, that we thought were important for them, uh, that, that we kind of had that that communication going as much as we we possibly could so yeah to your point um certainly you know the more and I think it's an interesting thing these days as as I'm seeing now you know it's remote working so you don't have to just be in a regional office you now in an office and everybody's at home uh so in a sense you know we're kind we're, we're of this nation we're all coming together as as a unit you know um just being in the one room at the one time and and thrashing things out uh yeah that's changed a little bit but but nonetheless the principle sits in behind Mm. Uh,
1: you've got uh uh, your book and, and obviously it's on the screen that i'm looking at right now if better is possible i find it it's it's really fascinating that to kind of think of how difficult it is to continue if we look at a sporting sense and then I'm going to tie this into corporate later on. But from a uh, from a sporting sense to continue winning and being unbeaten for a long period of time, you know, we talk about some of the best teams in the world, uh, most successful teams of all time. You look at the All Blacks, the Australian cricket team, you look at, you know, we talked about Vince Lombardi and uh Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, you know, realistically, the longest winning streaks are only around 20 games. Mm. um i think with Tess it was 16 is that right and 23 with one mm. days i think New Ze- the all blacks are around the same it's extremely hard to continue winning um i was very fortunate to be part of a team that holds a new zealand record for most um unbeaten games in a row and it potentially is a world record we haven't found anyone else out yet and it was in field hockey of 272 games unbeaten oh. mm. uh, so 16 years they lost the final the year before i started so i was 13 years old playing in the premier men's team um they lost the yeah the game the year before in the final and they'd won the previous five years so they went what lost one game in 21 years it's extraordinary yeah extraordinary extraordinary thing yeah um but why is it so tough what why is it so difficult to get a team that has got you know amazing players that can gel together you know, ninety oh you know, eighty percent of the time they can get it right. Why is it so difficult to keep winning um all the time? Yeah, look at uh, a few things I think. I think um
0: internally there there's a, a mindset battle that you, you need to conquer because you know, there there are all myths floating around, which we addressed a few times, is that you know, every win you have means you're closer to your next your, your next loss. And the question is, well, why? Why does that have to be wrong? Right? You know, why aren't you closer to your next win? Yes. Um, so often, uh, I think the, the little bit of that that resides in the back room or oh, in, the, in, the, in the dressing room. Whenever we win, you know, and, and this is more anecdotal than anything else, but if I look through the 11 players, you know, there might be all of those players on field that you'd say were 90 percent and above in terms of what you'd expect them to do on the field given who they were. you might say there is another three or so that uh, sit in the maybe 60 to 90 percent and then there's another three or four that are well below that you know um so when you're winning, uh, even though it's a great feeling, not everybody's lived up to their reputations and, and delivered. But the essential feature of sure of, of teams that you're associated with, and when other teams do win over an extended period of time, it's not the same people that, that occupy those positions. You know, so the next game, the top three or four might, in fact, be the people who are at the bottom three or four in the previous game. So. So one of the critical parts of teams sustaining success over a period of time is that it isn't just relying on one or two people, you know, it becomes a real uh, team on-field effort. And then that extends to, to off-field because we were just talking about culture. So what we need in the people who surround the team are, again, people who, who believe in the players, who believe in, in winning, who believe in, you know, who have the same sort of mindset. Um and so these days when you look at, you know, the recent World Cup and, and those squads, you look at an Australian cricket team and those squads and I think of of this um corporate that I'm working with, there are a heck of a lot of people in there. Yeah. You know, there are a heck of a lot of people. And and so inside that there will be now a lot more doubters and, and possibly uh more than doubt, uh, quite uh Cynical sometimes about you know how things are going, and so they their effect can erode some of the real uh, mentality and and uh, positive performance stuff that you know that the rest of the group might maintain. So um, therefore, it's I think it's it's it becomes increasingly difficult um, to manage a group of people and certainly manage an organisation to say right we're going to you know we are going to win every project and we're going to win every day because there are so many people in there who doubt themselves and doubt the organisation, you know? So, um, I imagine in your 272 wins or whatever it was over five years, there would have been a, a really, really strong nucleus of, of players that were in that group. We might add a few come and go, but you know, over a period of time, the turnover would have been relatively small and, uh, and the influences on that group would have been relatively small. And the key of was obviously family and, and friends. It would have been because the, the playing group was consistent, then the friends and family were consistent as well. So, so and then, you know, well, we cricket, um, you know, there's home and away games, obviously, which has always been the case. But in previous times when we toured, you know, we, we'd had pre-game, uh, matches, you know, before going into a test match uh, or into a one-day series. And then through the time, through the series, we'd be playing some intervening games as well um, prior to going into the next test match, which allowed, one, um, those players who were your first-up selections to have a bit of a break, freshen up, get ready. But it also gave those who weren't in the team, who were on the edge and wanted to be in the team, it gave them an opportunity to try to press for selection. Hmm. These days, you know, you virtually arrive into another country, uh, maybe 10 days or maybe five days before you begin a tournament. And then there is no intervening game. And so players get injured, they're not performing. And then you, you pick from players who are actually not playing to bring them into the starting line. Hmm. So I think that makes it really, really difficult these days for teams, certainly away from home, uh, but even at home, it's getting a bit hard. Uh, to perform consistently, and therefore inconsistent.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it certainly is. It, you know, I'm in the process of interviewing everyone in that team over the the 16 years, and looking yep. at kind of what what allowed that to happen. And there's some unique things that stand out that kind of resonate with some other research that's done. Um, I, I just find it fascinating. For me, I, I listen to or well, I see lots of stuff go out there around what is high performance and. I go look it's nice it helps it's but really all you're doing is providing skill sets that will allow a team to perform but it's very different to high performing um so yeah I'm always a little bit it's interesting I think high performance in a way in the corporate world has kind of been uh, watered down a little bit just by a lot of people saying they're high performance uh say you're talking about what high performance is without really realizing there's a difference between performing well and being high performance in situation what have you noticed in the corporate space where there are no defined rules, there is no, you know, <laughs> there is no oval, there is no boundary rope, et cetera, to to suppose the, somewhat the game they are playing? And I know Simon Sinek talks about the finite game and the infinite game and the differences between kind of sport setting, whether it's very finite versus infinite, where you are in the corporate world. How do you how do you know if you are actually winning? in a corporate setting?
0: Yeah, look, it's a good question. I think most uh, organizations struggle with that. I mean, there are certain areas in bu- in business that don't uh, and, and I think of sales as one um, and probably, you know, if you're on the uh, stock exchange floor, that's probably another because what's happening there is you're actually dealing in data, uh, mm-hmm. you know, minute by minute almost, um, but also you've got a school uh, and, I, you know, so I think what sport uh, or where some of the, those sort of things can help the corporate world is, firstly, I reckon uh, scoreboards become really, really important um, to help business corporates reduce their infinite game to a finite game. Yeah. Um, and, and to do that and to help that is that, you know, sport has the luxury of, uh, you know, preparation time. So you're playing your hockey match. So it's through the week, you're, you're training and you're preparing and you know you're playing, yeah. you know, sometimes not so much in football for hockey, but kind of know the field you're on and some of the conditions. And so you, you prepare yourself and give yourself best chance to, to play well. Then you go and play the game. And In your case, you always won. Um, but nonetheless, you know, after the game, kind of review the game and... Work out some of the things that work really well for you. And then maybe a couple of things you like to ticker with. And then of course you've got a new opponent. So you restructure and re and replan and get ready. So sport has that luxury, which business doesn't because business is in competition every day. So therefore, generally what what business does, it just rolls from one day to the next. Yeah. And it. In the main, generalised in the main, it doesn't take time to reflect on or set up for success. So, you know, probably increasingly a uh, number of businesses, or at least a number of sections in business, will maybe have a team hour of a of a morning, you know, ten minutes. Um, this is, you know, shift work is, is a really good example of that. You know, in various sectors, but I work in mining a bit, so you know, when the new shift comes on. The uh, supervisor or a shift manager uh, writes says, well, you know, this is the day, this blah, 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 and spends 10, 10 to 15 minutes, a bit of a toolbox talk, uh, and then off they go, you know. Mm. Um, now, in the corporate world, or very rarely is that occurring, you know, the, yeah. the leader of any small tenant is right, this is what the day looks like, this is what we're trying to achieve today, and off you go. And, and then, even if they did that, well, do they actually then spend the time the next morning, uh, in a sense, very quickly saying, well, what happened yesterday? Yeah. Uh, how do we go? Uh, what do we need to fix? And this is the day coming. Yeah. So leaders don't do that. Their teams don't do that. and Therefore, corporates don't do that. And therefore, that's why the, the game becomes infinite. Whereas I believe it can become finite because one... Leaders and teams should be better at doing that. And secondly, if they then instituted some form of scoring scoreboard uh, yeah. to measure that, and would set up, you know, one week, two week milestone targets, then there will be a, an ongoing assessment, just as you said, like a sporting team. You put a boundary around it, uh, and you play, and then you actually can make some assessment, and then you can do something with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's a really important component i think you know having that scoreboard or dashboard in a, in a way that you can constantly review you can debrief and you know you can plan deliver debrief and continue moving forward and, and seeing how you can you know obviously improve the scoreboard as you uh, each day is so important that tight feedback loop which we generally don't see so often in corporate world, we. We do it all the time when we're coaching, you know, yep. if you're a good coach, you're, you're always giving tight feedback loops, uh, but it doesn't happen so much in corporate. And it's, you know, trying to figure out how we can do that more often. No, and, and then you know, down to that
0: individual level, as you're just saying with coaching and feedback is, is that's when feedback's most important or sorry, most impactful is that if you can give that feedback that it's accurate firstly, but it, it, it's as immediate as you can make it, then that's yep. impactful. But of course, you know, the old performance reviews, which still exist, you know, you know six months or 12 months, and we, we can hardly remember what happened in a day, let alone yeah. six months' time or 12 months' time. You know? and, and then the, the timing's gone. I mean, it's, it becomes irrelevant. So um, that's why, as I've just said before, I think, as you say, national death for scoreboards, scoreboards um, and then that reflection process both for the team and individuals will, will lead to really um, opportunities for that continual
1: improvement. Hmm. Spending a bit of time in corporate now, and, and obviously I'm gonna get you to put on your kind of futuristic hat in a way. What, what are the big things that leaders uh, are going to, and, and even coaches in a way, coaches of sporting teams, what are some of the key things that you feel are gonna be integral in being able to navigate you know the next five ten years in the way that we lead knowing that you know we've had quite a fundamental shift in the way that we kind of live and work and and even the i suppose the behaviors that we accept or don't accept anymore and the things that we're more open to what are the big shifts that you're going to see that leaders are really going to need to focus on and coaches is going to focus on in the next five ten years Probably just the fundamentals,
0: the, the basics. Um, so, for example, uh, I was talking to a chap here in Brisbane the other day who heads up a big mining operation. And I said to him, you know, like, wh- what are, what are the things that you're really facing that um, you think need addressing, uh, you know, in the next period of time? And, and he said... Um, well, first thing, technology, you know, because technology is changing all the time. And so it, it's how to embrace technology so that it, it becomes a useful tool rather than it becoming a dictator of what you do. So um, whether that's hardware or whether it's something like, uh, you know, AI or chat even too, um, it's actually trying to embrace it so that it becomes a real tool of use for, for you as a leader. And for the boosters. So how to do that and therefore how to find people who are across all that. Um, and then tied into that is the data. You know, there is absolutely so much information these days, whether it be sport or, or business, it's just overwhelming. So so what I think becomes really important to help leaders make decisions is, is going to be these data analysts and data scientists who can, you know, sift through or, Again, understanding where the business wants to be and how it's trying to get there. So, what now is really the important information that you need as a leader to help you make good decisions now that will impact on the future? So, so that's to me really important. And and one of the other things that he said was, he said, uh, you know, we were having trouble with this hydraulic pump up one of them, their mine sites, and he said we had, uh, you know, six or seven engineers on it trying to fix it. Uh, and he said, oh, I I talked to a consultant down here. He said, oh, I've got a bloke who's 70 plus and uh, worked in hydrology all his life. Uh, I think he'll be able to help him. So sends him up to the mine site and he said in 10 minutes and found the problem and fixed it. Um, and so his his point was, and, and I see it in this corporate organisation I'm working with, that because life seems to be so, going so fast, leaders say they haven't got any time anymore to, to kind of manage and leave properly because they're just so, so busy, um, that we have potentially this exodus of knowledge, experience, and wisdom, outdoor, uh, without it actually being shared, recorded, um, you know, as part and, and, and made part of not only culture, but technical systems and so on. So in other words, we're, we're tending to see that everything bright and shiny and new is better than what was beforehand. But in fact, a lot of stuff that was beforehand uh, was pretty basic fundamental, but it works. You know, and and new people coming in, whether it's a sporting team or a corporate team, um, you know, are, are jumping rungs on the ladder to, to keep getting further up the ladder. And then what becomes more important is that you actually need to go through those rungs, well firstly you need to have those rungs in place and, and, and then be able to transition people through that. So the, I think the ability to store that knowledge and experience, whether that's stored by way of in technology or whether it's stored by way of holding you know, people not necessarily in the job but having access to them so that they won't come back and contribute. and. and uh, mentor and coach and uh really be a resource to the organization i think that really is something that the places need to to take very very seriously
1: yeah i like that i think that's important you're you're someone who loves you know supporting young up and coming people and things like that if if someone is inside an organization um or even they are maybe a player in in sport but they are getting close to that point of transitioning into being a people manager whether it be a coach or whether it be leading teams inside organizations what would be some guidance that you would share with them in how to approach that transition from being a great individual contributor to now being a leader of people yes um well not everybody
0: can do it so um just because you're good technically, you know, we all, we all see that, that then the the good technicians get promoted into more administrative roles or where they have to manage people without necessarily the training or without necessarily finding out whether or not they're good at doing it. You know, so um, for the, the first thing I'll go back to, what I said when I took on the present coaching role, I think the first thing is you, you just got to be really understanding of how you operate as a person. You, you just got to, Know that inside out, and and everybody everybody has a philosophy and a set of principles. But again, they very really reflect on what they are. And so, when you lead people, or when you coach people, or you're in a position of authority, um, what those people underneath you want is you to be consistent. So uh, it may mean that they don't necessarily agree with you or they don't like you all the time, but they actually very clearly understand. You and what we stand for. And yeah. so, therefore, the young leader who has now been taken out of the workforce, if you like, the people that they're about to now lead, uh, that's a big step. And I, and I saw that in the mining industry. Supervisors that set of shifts were taken up from the shift and placed into that supervisory role without a heck of a lot of training. Yeah. And, and so, in that Shift force, then you've got people who are good friends with them, people who didn't like them, and old hands who don't agree with them, and yet they weren't given any skills to actually manage that sort of environment. So, but the first step is one: you got to certainly understand how you operate yourself because you you have to deliver that every day, uh, so people know what we stand for, um, and then it's really in a sense uh, a bit of an organisation's responsibility to do some really good assessments, I think, in terms of what the role is and, therefore, what is the type of person they're looking for that role. And just because they're good at what they do currently does not necessarily guarantee that that's going to flow on into a people management sense almost. So, So, you know, I think it's a bit of both.
1: The the individual has to be very clear on themselves and the organisation has to be very clear on the role and what they're looking for. Mm, Beautiful. I've just come off delivering an emerging leaders program in Canberra uh, for a peak body association uh, and, and just love, I think the people that have been selected have been selected for the right reasons in that they can see that they not only good at what they did, but they can they they have those talents to lead people. And I think the, right. you know, it, was, it was fun being in that situation where it wasn't just a group of people because they were great technicians, they were actually there because they could see the potential in them and leading people, yep. you know, which I thought was fantastic. Yep. Yeah. But, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: Yes. It, um, well, it's probably not. The answer is probably not necessary for the first time, uh, but again, it's a principle that you know. I go on coaching uh, first eleven cricket team at Mount in a local uh, GPS competition in Brisbane. And so, and so I guess, while it's not the first time, but I, I try to treat every session as its first time. So that um, I don't want to necessarily repeat what's just been done. I want to make the session uh, different. I want to make it as enjoyable and as challenging as possible. So. And and that's probably what I try to do most times is not to just rinse and repeat. Although that does occur, I'm not saying I don't. um, Wherever I can, I try to make something uh, as new as possible because that's exciting for me and for me. And if
1: it is for me, then it should be for for those
0: who I'm either teaching or coaching or speaking with.
1: Yeah, brilliant. What is the one question that you would love to solve? (laughs) Yeah, that'd be scratching my head.
0: Um, I'll tell you one story that that sticks in my mind. Uh, When I went to university, first year engineering I was doing, and we had a physics lecture. And his question was, you're driving along the road and you see a big uh, sort of dark spot on the road uh, in front of you. He said, why is that? You know, ah, oh, jeez, what is going on? You know, like it had everybody scratching their head. But it was all about, as you're driving along, what happens is the car actually goes into a dip just before the, the black spot on the right. And because the car goes into a dip, then all the, the oil and muck under the car is then shaken shake loose, or some of it is, and so it's the principles of momentum and notion, which then the, the spot is beyond... The dip because of momentum and so on. So that was that always reminds me of that. But I suppose um, uh, a couple of things that I I um, thought of was um, it came from a book. You know, what what's the meaning of life? What, what is the actual meaning of life? And there was, that was Victor Franco, I suppose. And because um, when you look around life and you see some people that really seem to be doing it tough or really seem to be getting the the rubber the green the wrong way all the time. And you you just wonder why? Why should that be happening to to them? You know? Uh why if we've got to have bad things happen to 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 society, then why can't we share it in a sense, you know? But why does it
1: happen to some people? So anyway, part of the meaning of life, why? Good question. I love it. For you, what is an inspiring great leader and who's a great example of this for you? Well, right, again, I'm not going to give you the simple answer unfortunately. Um, so I think a
0: great leader, there shouldn't be a couple of things to mate, um, takes a complex and makes it simple for, for the audience. Um, they're a person of what, what you see them as uh, high integrity. So meaning that Whatever they say they, they're going to do, they do. And so it builds trust and, and you see them as a very honest nice person. I think a person of great wisdom. Uh, they have compassion and and they certainly will always demonstrate an interest in you. You know, you seem to be the most important person to them. Um, so who, who is that? Well, there's no one in particular for me, but it, I've seen it in... Bosses, some colleagues, captains that I've, I've coached with or or coached against, and then and then obviously some family and friends. You know, um, they they all at different times are inspiring because they bring those sort of values and principles and actions into life.
1: Love it. John, it's been a fascinating conversation and I'm sure people would like to learn more about what you do and and your thoughts on, on life and what the meaning of life is and, and also leadership. Uh, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, well, thanks, Greg.
0: Look, the easiest way will be the website, I think, BuchananCoaching.com. That's that's the best place to find me. Or, or I'm on LinkedIn, which is another easy place to find me, John Buchanan. Um, or be kind a of success coaching either way so that's the easiest way and then people can you know book a chat or just follow uh, other details on on the website
1: it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today john i I love your your approach to life the mindset you know that being really grateful um and and the humility you show along the way and just that you being staying really grounded when opportunities have presented them, or you have created opportunities, and to really think around what are those foundations of what's required to be able to deliver the best possible environment you can in those situations, whether it be uh, your the first eleven cricket team you're working with, whether it's a you know the Australian cricket team, or it's even some of the corporates you're working with your the way your mind works is sensible and but it's also looking towards the future and around how can we continue to evolve and do things differently Uh, i thank you for your time it's been it's been wonderful and i look forward to continuing the conversations in the future Um, so thank you for what you're doing in this world whether it be with little kids in sport and giving people opportunities right through to some of the biggest corporates and sports teams in the world. So thank you very much for your words of wisdom today. Thanks for all those kind words, Craig, and uh, pleasure to be on here. Thank you. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders Podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.